we're looking at the circumcision and the presentation of Christ in the temple. The circumcision and the presentation. And I'm going to read uh, Acts 2. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, that is the Roman Empire. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth and to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that we were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. Now they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, with the angel, a host, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem, and see this thing which had come to pass, which the Lord made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which is told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And here's the beginning of our text, verse 21 and following. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And on the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him that, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. So when he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and Mary marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for a fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." And there was one Anna, a prophetess, a daughter of Peniel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived 107 years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and, gr and the grace of God was upon him. We'll stop there. <clears throat> Thus ended the reading of God's holy word. So we're going to look at verses 21 to 24 to begin. <clears throat> Following the departure of the shepherds, Luke turns his attention to the circumcising and the naming of Jesus, as well as the purification of Mary his mother. These events took place at the temple complex in Jerusalem and led up to the meeting of Simeon and Anna with Mary Joseph and their child. With the baby properly circumcised, named and presented to Yahweh, prophetic words are given, further revealing the significance of the Christ child. So we see over and over and over again 
they're told who this child is. This is a testimony. Jesus will not only fulfill the hopes of all believing pious Israelites as their Messiah, Lord, and Redeemer, but he is also the Savior of the Gentiles. And of course, this will become a great stumbling block to apostate Pharisaical Judaism, who doesn't like that idea. As we examine this section, we will see that everything carefully recorded by Luke is important for us to understand concerning the purpose and person and work of Christ. So there's reasons why this is all recorded for our benefit. Now, Luke's account is chronological and begins <clears throat> with the circumcision of the Lord, which takes place on the eighth day after the birth of the Son, which, of course, is the first day of the week. That would be today. That would be a Sunday. The circumcision of the Son was the first commanded to Abraham, Genesis 17, 10 to 14, and it was a sign and seal of membership in the Abrahamic covenant, which is the first explicit covenant sign of what is called the covenant of grace. That is this promise and plan of redemption. And this runs, of course, the promise goes to first Genesis 3.15, the promise is made to Adam and Eve, but we have the first covenant sign given here, explicit sign to Abraham. It is a sign of the everlasting covenant, Genesis 17, 13, and was implied to Gentiles who entered Abraham's household, Genesis 17, 13 as well. So it's not a matter of simply uh, blood or who your father or parents are. It's also a matter of faith. And by implication to all Gentiles in the Old Testament who had the faith of Abraham, who joined themselves to Israel, and after the exodus from Egypt, there was a whole bunch of people who joined themselves to Israel by faith. And the men were circumcised and they became Israelites. Circumcision, or the cutting away of the flesh of the foreskin, was the old covenant symbol of regeneration, the new birth, or the cleansing and renewal of our corrupt natures inherited from Adam. That's what it signifies. No one can have true faith, repentance, and sanctification without first receiving the heart cleansing and renewal that comes with the new birth. Okay, and yeah, Billy Graham got it wrong. He wrote a book on the new birth where he, he presents the Arminian position, which is you make yourself born again by choosing Christ. No, you're born again so you can choose Christ. That's where the gift of faith comes. That's where you're enabled to see. The meaning of circumcision raises an important question. Now, since our Lord was born without original sin, without any guilt of sin, and had no need of cleansing or renewal, why was he subjected to this painful bloody rite? His sinless perfection and impeccable holiness obviously needed no symbol of the putting off of the pollution of Adam. Well, there are a number of reasons why Jesus was subjected to circumcision. First, Scripture tells us that as a man born in the likeness of sinful flesh, and that is uh, Romans 8.3, Jesus was born a Jew under the law of Moses. As the federal head of the elect, or the invisible church, the new redeemed humanity, Christ had to obey the whole law of God exhaustively in the place of his people. And Paul teaches this explicitly, Galatians 4, 4-5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So our Lord came to suffer the whole penalty of the law, the curse of the law, and also to fulfill all righteousness. So as the second or last Adam, as he's called in Corinthians, Jesus had to keep the law perfectly for his people in order to overturn the, the first Adam's sin, the federal head of fallen humanity who had failed to keep God's law. He's the second Adam. He's the new Adam. He brings in a new redeemed humanity. Christ obeyed the law perfectly, fully, perfectly, faithfully from birth, and even though our Savior had no intrinsic need for circumcision, he underwent the pain and blood of it for us. 
because we needed an imputed or alien righteousness, as Luther liked to say. It's a righteousness that is not our own. It comes from outside of us. It comes from Christ. A righteousness provided for by our substitute, who is Jesus. So at the beginning of his life, he shed drops of blood on our behalf, and at the end, he poured out red streams of blood. It's part of his fulfilling the law. It's part of his uh, being obedient and fulfilling the, the second, uh, as the second Adam. Paul says if the one who was circumcised is a debtor to keep the whole law, Galatians 5.3. Well, who's the only person in human history who kept the whole law? Perfectly. Jesus Christ. He kept the law. He obeyed God's will. He is the only perfect covenant keeper. And he did so as a loyal son of Abraham. His circumcision was a first step in his obedience to the will of God. And a first shedding of the redeeming blood. It is one of those things which became... Uh, he had to do in order to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. And then second, <clears throat> and this is a theological point, by the circumcision of Jesus, his people were to be circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Colossians 2.11-12. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So our circumcision in Christ is equated with our burial to sin in our baptism. The circumcision of Christ points to the, our vital spiritual union with him in his death and resurrection, the definitive cutting off of the power of the sin in our regeneration. So there's rich symbolism here that we should take into account. At the same time the believer was circumcised and put to death with Christ, he was also raised together to a new spiritual life in him. The fact that Jesus has perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law of Moses with its bloody rites and ceremonies is why the bloody, powerful, right, painful rite of circumcision has been replaced by the non-bloody rite of water baptism. And that's one of the evidences, of course, of infant baptism, is that that rite applied to the infants of the Old Testament. And, of course, in Acts, the book of Acts, uh, whole households were baptized, which would include infants. People back then had a lot more children than we do today. Third, the day of Christ's circumcision, which is the eighth day, points us to our Lord's resurrection victory on the eighth day, or the first day of the week, which is the beginning of a, the creation of a new world, a new covenant, a new order, a new dispensation. So already here, at the eighth day of circumcision, the symbolism of it points to his resurrection, points to a new creation. The fall of Adam brought sin, suffering, calamity, spiritual darkness, and ethical rebellion into, into the universe. See Jeremiah 4.23. But Jesus, through his redemptive obedience, creates a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 65.17. He is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Romans 3.14. The eighth day was also the day of the <clears throat> recreation uh, of the dedication of the firstborn son. We see this eighth day symbolism throughout the Old Testament. I didn't put it in here, but I should. you can also note how many people were in the ark. Eight persons were in the ark. It's a new beginning, a new creation. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all who believe. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul calls Christ the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8, 29. The author of Hebrews calls the people of God the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, Hebrews 12, 23. And the eighth day was the day of cleansing from defilement in the Old Testament law, Leviticus 14, 10, 15, 14, and 29. So with all this rich typology in mind, 
But you can see that Jesus' own submission to this Old Testament ordinance pointed to his own obedience unto death and then victory. Christ's redemption involved a recreation every bit as significant and important as the first creation, the physical creation. In fact, it's more important. On the eighth day, the first day of the new week, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For Jesus, circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith, Romans 4.11. But it was not for his own need, for he was sinless. It was for our benefit. And then, of course, fourth, the circumcision of Jesus was necessary for him as a son of Abraham and a son of David for a public testimony to Israel. The Messiah, teacher, and savior of Israel had to be a Jew, born of a Jewish mother and a Jewish father, made under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. The savior of Israel had to come from Judah. If he was not born as a Jew, as the fulfillment of prophecy, he could have never been a teacher or leader, or Messiah, or act as a priest over Israel. Without this circumcision, he would have been regarded by all Jews as an unclean Gentile. So it was absolutely necessary even to minister within Israel. And we know the case of Paul uh, had Timothy circumcised so he could minister to the Jews, even though he didn't really have to. He would have been considered an apostate for refusing to submit himself to the law. So it was necessary for him to be the teacher, the leader of the Jews, the rabbi. And then we come to the next major point, the name Jesus. And this is emphasized. In uh, 21b, Luke focuses our attention on the naming of the child. His name was called Jesus, Yeshua, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now here the author is referring back to Luke one thirty one. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Mary and Joseph did not choose this name. God chose the name and told an angel to tell Mary and Joseph that he had to be the, named Jesus. He had to be named Jesus. And it's, it's not an accident. Josh, Yeshua, Joshua, the one who led the people into the promised land, had the same name. That's a typology of the coming of Christ who brings a new heaven and a new earth. Mary and Joseph officially named the baby at a circumcision and dedication in obedience to a special command of God. The word Jesus, Greek, Aesus, is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua, Yeheshua, which means Yahweh saves, or simply Savior. The God-given name is deliberate and instructive. The Son of God came down from heaven to be the one and only Savior of men. Before he could be exalted as Lord, he first had to be Savior. The Father selects a name for his incarnate Son, which emphasizes his grace, mercy, compassion, deliverance, and help for lost sinners throughout the world. That Luke understands the etymology of this word, what it means, is evident from his account in Acts 4.12. Now there is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now the account of the angel's encounter with Joseph in Matthew 121 gives us an explicit reason for this name. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, that's the parallel account. The angel who told him to name Joseph and Mary, that they had to name him Jesus, added this. This is important. This is significant. The angel's message, which comes from God, is noteworthy, for it teaches that Christ actually saves his people. This is what theologians call a definite, particular, or limited atonement. The angelic message is radically different than what most evangelicals are taught today. 
Now, what are they taught? Well, they're taught that Jesus died for all men in the whole world without exception. And that our Lord suffered in suffering and death made salvation possible if men would choose Jesus with their own unencumbered free will. This teaching is called Arminianism or semi-Pelagianism. And it says that the vast majority of individuals for whom Jesus died will end up in hell because they did not allow Christ to save them due to their autonomous, free, unencumbered will. So you have Jesus paying for their sins, according to this theory. It's a heresy. And then, if they don't believe, they have to pay for their sins again in hell. Their sins are paid for twice. Once by Jesus, who actually doesn't save them because they didn't exercise their free will. And then they pay for their sins again in hell. But let us once again consider what God tells us about Jesus' name. It says that Jesus saves his own people. This implies that our Lord only saves a certain fixed number of people in this world, which is the church, the sheep, the elect. And our Lord made this point very clear in John 6, 37 and 39. Listen very carefully to this. All that the Father gives me, that means they're already possessed somehow by the Father. They've been chosen by the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Okay, so all the ones given to him by the Father will go to heaven. All those given to him by the Father will have the resurrection unto life. And Jesus said, I will not lose even one of them. So this idea that the vast majority of mankind, Jesus died for their sins, but those people will all go to hell because they didn't exercise their unencumbered free will, that is simply not true, according to Scripture. When we use this name, Jesus, we must always remember the glorious meaning that God has assigned to it. Christ truly, certainly, actually saves his people from their sins. He saves his own by paying the penalty in full, by enduring the curse for sin in full, by eliminating all the guilt, past, present, and future, that they accumulated by the rebellion through his suffering and sacrificial death on their behalf. This bloody death in the place of the guilty sinner is called vicarious atonement. It means that Jesus died in our place. The death and suffering and hell and penalty that you deserve for your sins is taken by God. It is reckoned to Jesus' account on the cross. It is imputed to him, and he completely eliminates it by his own suffering and death. So you don't go to heaven because you're a good person. You don't go to heaven because you, you're, you've earned it. You go to heaven by grace because God gives you this. This bloody death in the place of the guilty sinner is called vicarious atonement. He does not make the elimination of sin a possibility if men cooperate with God and do good works, but actually ensures that sin is removed. He also satisfies the law of God by providing a perfect obedience to this law that, it, that is also reckoned to his people. The righteousness of Christ is, is imputed to them. John 17, 9-10, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So if Jesus died for all men without exception and was really trying to save every single person on planet Earth, this high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 would explicitly contradict that intention. I don't pray for the world. I only pray for those whom you have given me, for they belong to you. What does that mean? They were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians chapter 1 so clearly teaches. They are the elect. Were they chosen because they, uh, God looked down the corridors of time and saw that they would believe in Christ? Absolutely not. They were chosen by God purely out of his good pleasure, it says, out of his grace and mercy. Nothing within them is the cause. If it was because of something they did, then they had a reason to boast. And we know that we have no reason to boast before God. Salvation is by faith alone. We take none of the credit. The name of Jesus 
as well as his teachings on high priestly prayer, John 17, see also Hebrews 7, 24 to 25, <coughs> where it makes it perfectly clear that Christ's high priestly work does ensure salvation. It makes it perfectly clear that God in his saving operations does not deal generally or universally with mankind, but particularly with specific individuals who are actually saved. And this point becomes obvious when we study the doctrines of regeneration and sanctification and learn that every single person united to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection receives a new birth, and with the new birth they receive the gifts of faith and repentance, they receive definitive sanctification, and consequently they will be progressively sanctified in history and they will persevere to the very end. And here's some passages, you can look them up later, but they prove this point. Acts 5.31, Acts, 6, Acts 16.13-14, I think that's, God opened Lydia's heart to believe, or maybe that was Acts 5. God opens Lydia's heart to believe the things said by Paul. Colossians 2.11-13, Ephesians 2.6, Titus 3.5, John 3.8, Philippians 1.29, etc. We believe because we are born again. We are not born again because we first believe. And that's the great era of evangelicalism and Billy Graham and all these people. You make, they say you make yourself born again by believing. No. How, if you're dead in trespasses and sins, you can't believe. You hate the truth. You hate God. Paul says in Romans 3, there is none who seeks after God. No, not one. Nobody seeks after God. Romans 8, nobody can do good. Nobody can do anything that pleases God. You need regeneration first. If the Redeemer only made salvation possible, if men actualized it with an autonomous act of their will, no one would be safe for all men are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1-5. They are spiritually blind and thus unable to come to Christ without a prior work of sovereign grace. John 3, 3, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, where it says we're spiritually blind and we need the work of the Holy Spirit in order to see the truth. 1 Corinthians 3, 20-21, Romans 3, 11, and of course Romans 8, 7-8. So is the name of Jesus that God chose himself, not Mary and Joseph, God chose that name, is it significant? Yes, for he will most certainly save his people from their sins. And that ought to strengthen your faith. That ought to strengthen your faith. And then we come to the presentation of Christ. In verses 22 through 24, Luke describes Mary's obedience to the law of purification. Now, in the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves are two young pigeons. And, of course, that's uh, Leviticus 2, 2 and 8. In this account, we see Mary and Joseph's piety. Not only did Jesus fully conform to the law from birth, his mother and father obeyed the law and thus ensured that their baby fulfilled all the ceremonial requirements. They were pious. They obviously were not sinful like Jesus, but they were pious. They were godly. The ritual purification of a woman after childbirth had to take place at the temple 40 days after the birth of a son or 33 days from the day of circumcision. And it would be 80 days in the case of a female child. Leviticus 12, 1 to 8. Excuse me, that's Leviticus, uh, above it was Leviticus 12, 2 and 8. Now prior to her purification, Mary was not permitted to touch anything sacred or holy or come into the sanctuary or temple. Leviticus 12, 4. Even though Jesus was perfectly free from sin, he submitted to the law regarding circumcision and Mary submitted to the rite of purification prescribed in the law, by the law. Now, Jesus was free from the guilt and pollution of sin, and consequently, Mary did not really need this purification ritual. Most theologians argue that it's connected to the fact that they're giving birth to somebody who has the guilt and pollution of sin. Well, Jesus didn't have the guilt and pollution of sin at all. He was sinless, impeccable. In addition, she held the baby Jesus in her arms, and he received nourishment from her breasts. 
she had to repeatedly and daily touch the infinitely holy one who came down from heaven, who was the antitype of the sanctuary and all the holy things associated with the temple. A greater than a temple has come. The temple is only a symbol. Jesus is the reality. But the extraordinary, in this case, did not allow her to circumvent her duties to the law of Moses, even though Jesus was sinless. Now, Luke informs us that they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem, indicating that they uh, were still dwelling in Bethlehem until her time of purification had come. Luke explains the reason for the dedication of Jesus and the accompanying sacrifice, referring to Exodus 13.12, combined with the paraphrase of Exodus 13.2. <clears throat> this law was given as a remembrance of the Jews' deliverance from Egypt. When the destroying angel killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians. Men, animals, everything. But the angel spared the firstborn Israelite sons due to the sacrificial blood of the spotless lamb splattered on the doorpost and the lentil of their dwellings. Both sides of the door and the top of the door had a splash of blood. The angel saw that and passed over that household. Since the firstborn son had been redeemed in this special manner, they were set apart by God and consecrated unto Yahweh, Numbers 3.13. Now, if they were not of the tribe of Levi, the whole tribe of Levi was going to maintain this special setting apart. Uh, the tribe of Levi who were set apart for special religious service to God, they were required to be redeemed from the service to the sanctuary by the payment of five shekels of silver, Numbers 18.16, and a sacrifice was to be offered. So it's almost like you're buying the son back from God. He's not going to serve like a Levite. He's going to come back. But Joseph and Mary at this time were probably poor, certainly not wealthy or upper middle class, as indicated by their offering of turtle doves or two young pigeons, Leviticus 12.6. People of a higher class of money would offer a lamb. People who were poor were allowed to offer a couple of pigeons. Very inexpensive. Now, uh, in the Talmud and among the Jews, this was even called the offering of the poor. So they, they were regarded as poor. This offering of the two turtle doves or two young pigeons tells us two things. Number one, it indicates that our Lord came from a poor and humble household. Now, we're not talking about destitute poor, for he was a carpenter. He made a living. He, they had a house. So we're not talking about the destitute poor, but we, they were not wealthy. They were, not, they were poor. <coughs> this condition is in accord with the state of our Lord's humiliation. Number two. It also indicates that the Holy Family had not yet been visited by the Magi from the East, who gave them gold, frankincense, which is super expensive, it was for rich people, and myrrh, also very expensive. Matthew 2.11. Now the traditional view, which goes back to the ancient church, we're talking, you know, 4th, 5th century, the traditional view among churches that the Magi appeared on the 13th day after the Savior's birth, which is reflected in medieval and Renaissance art, artwork, as well as modern Christmas displays, is most certainly incorrect. It's wrong. Not only would Mary have been provided a better offering if she had received gold, but Matthew places the visit in a home, Matthew 2, 11, and tells us that after they uh, were warned in a dream about Herod's plot to murder the young child, they immediately departed for Egypt, where they stayed until Herod died, Matthew 2.13-15. So, when you see these things, and it's the Magi, and they're surrounded by Mary and Joseph, and the babies laying there in, in the crib, that's all wrong. And we know it's wrong, I didn't put this in here, but I should have put it in here, uh, Herod said, Herod killed all the babies two years old and younger. younger. If the baby was 12 days old, uh, as tradition has it, 
why they need to kill two years old and younger. He could just say, kill anybody under six months, kill anybody under three months, for that matter. And then number three, and this is important. The fact that Mary offered a sin offering in association with her purification, Leviticus 12, 6, clearly indicates that Mary understood that she needed forgiveness like everyone else. She offered a sin offering. So all this Roman Catholic teaching that Mary was without sin and she had an immaculate conception, all this Roman Catholic garbage, it's all false. It's all clearly, easily refuted by Scripture. She needed to be cleansed by the blood of Christ because she possessed both original sin, as every human being except Christ possessed, and actual sin. The Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary was preserved from the sin of Adam and never committed sin her entire life is obviously false, and it's absurd. In Luke 147, Mary said, My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Well, if Mary was without sin, she didn't need a Savior. But she needed a Savior, just like everyone else. Was she a godly woman, a righteous woman, a holy woman? Yes, she was. Was she without sin? Absolutely not. If Mary was sinless, as Romanists teach, she was, a not need of a sa- she was not in need of a Savior. The Roman Catholic teaching regarding Mary as a sinless co-mediatrix to God is erroneous and also blasphemous. For they exalt Mary either on a level with Christ or, in practicality, they exalt Mary above Christ. And I've, I was raised a Roman Catholic, and we were taught. Now, when you're, when you're getting in trouble, who do you want to go to, your father or your mother? If you have a problem, who do you go to, your mother or your father? Well, it's better to go to Mary. She's more understanding than Jesus and more merciful than Jesus. And all that stuff is just absolute nonsense. It's blasphemous. In the normal ritual, the child is presented before the Lord and then is received back from him. This would take place in the court of the women on the north side, near the gate of the women. It was called the gate of the women. The temple, the temple, the, the women had a separate section for the women and the men had a separate section for the men. And that's actually maintained today. If you go to Israel, the women are praying over here on the right and the men are over here on the left praying. They don't pray together. But they have separate areas of prayer. So they maintain that. <clears throat> Although all the particulars of the law were kept for Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, not Aaron, Jesus was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek who gave his whole life to the Father. Once his ministry began, he no longer called Mary his mother, but woman. It's very interesting. And remember, they come to him. He's teaching in a house. Hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. They're calling for you. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Those who believe the gospel. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Those who believe in me and follow my words. And then we come to Simeon and his prophetic statement. We're just going to introduce this because we don't have enough time to consider it in full. And I'm going to read just 25 to 35. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. In the Hebrew, that would be Simon. In the Greek, Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his, mother's, and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for a fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. <clears throat> so as they enter the temple complex, and of course he's led, Simeon is led there by the Holy Spirit, so this would be fulfilled. They encounter a righteous man named Simeon. He is only mentioned in this chapter in the whole New Testament. His role is similar to Zacharias, the father of John, uh, who is given a prophecy 
after the forerunner's birth, indicating the child's destiny and crucial role in redemptive history. And I don't go into this, I don't go into too much detail, but uh, in Luke there are parallels between the announcement of John, John's mother becoming pregnant and John's birth and Jesus, although Jesus is way more grand and detailed. Like Joseph, Mary, Elizabeth, and Zechariah, he is described as just and devout. This does not mean sinless, but rather that they were true believers who were covenant keepers. They took their religious duties seriously and habitually obeyed the law of God. With respect to men, Simeon was just, righteous, fair, equitable. And with respect to God, he was devout. That is, he served and worshipped Yahweh as commanded in the scriptures. He was careful in fulfilling all of his religious duties, his obligations, according to the sacred scriptures. His hope and faith were directed to the Messiah to come. His piety expressed itself in his longing and waiting for the comfort of Israel. The comfort described is the one brought about by the Savior's deliverance from sin and judgment. And this consolation calls to mind clearly such passages as Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received double for all her sins. And as you know, Isaiah 40 begins the second half, the second part of Isaiah, which is the part of all these promised blessings. The first part of Isaiah focuses a lot more on judgment. And the second half begins, talks about John the Baptist and the salvation of Christ. He is waiting for the coming Redeemer to bring about God's eschatological restoration of the covenant people. The expressions waiting for the consolation of Israel at the beginning of the section, verse 25, and waiting for the redemption of Israel at the end, verse 38, bracket together the whole Simeon and Anna narratives, thus focusing our attention on Christ's salvation. So it's amazing here, you know, the Gospels. And, of course, Luke spends more time on on Christ as a baby, and, and, and he's the only one who mentions Christ at the age of 12 going to the temple. And we see here the Gospel is being preached over and over and over again. The Gospel. Who is this marvelous baby? Who is this amazing baby, this God come to earth? This faith and hope is especially commendable given the situation of Israel at that time. Israel was in a very bad state spiritually and politically during the birth and life of Christ. The nation had been under Greek domination and then Roman domination for centuries. The political and religious leadership were, were, with only a very few exceptions, very corrupt and even apostate. The Sadducees were liberal unbelievers who rejected most of the Old Testament scriptures. They denied the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They only regarded the five books of Moses as authoritative. They rejected the prophets and the Psalms, the writings. They were liberals. They were terrible. The Pharisees, who were the conservatives in that day and were highly respected by most of the people, were legalists who had perverted the scriptures and thus denied salvation by grace through faith alone. They completely perverted true religion. They had a carnal, worldly, very inaccurate concept of the Messiah to come. Moreover, they had thoroughly corrupted justice and worship by adding their own human traditions to the word of God. So Jesus was born into a wicked and apostate generation. So, you know, John, the forerunner, repent. Save yourself from this wicked generation. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came into his own, but his own received him not. He came to a nation, invisible church, full of darkness, degradation, injustice, and apostasy. Yet, even in those dark times when things looked absolutely hopeless, there are people who have faith and hope, who are righteous. They are living righteous holy lives because of that faith. And there are some lessons about this that we should not forget. First, God never leaves himself without a true remnant, a faithful body, a believing people. He never entirely leaves himself without a faithful witness. 
It's very clear. Remember Elijah, all di disappointed. Oh, Lord, I'm the only one left. Everything's terrible. God says, no, I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You just don't know about them because they're in hiding because of persecution. God always has a remnant, a faithful remnant. No matter how small, hated, persecuted the believing remnant may be, the gates of hell shall never prevail against them. There are times that the true church may be driven into the wilderness and be a scattered little flock. But God will not let it die. He will preserve it and it will prosper and emerge, it will prosper and emerge victorious in his own good time. In the final days of the old covenant church, when its apostasy and iniquity were almost full to the brim, there were righteous men and women left in the nation and the capital that welcomed the Messiah with open arms. That's wonderful. And if we study redemptive history, we see that God in his wisdom quite often brings victory out of what looks like hopeless situations. And look at our own history, the history of the church. The Protestant Reformation sprang forth like a mighty flood in the midst of the darkest, most evil period of papal dominance, where the Roman Catholic Church in its hierarchy acted like mafia bosses, having people murdered, having mistresses, committing adultery, the papacy having sex orgies at the Vatican. Yes, sex orgies. We must remember how God operates and take great comfort. It is easy to get discouraged when churches and society are so full of theological rot, perversion, and apostasy. And I love that saying. Machen went to see B.B. Warfield, and he's sick, and he's going to die. And the state of the church at that time, liberalism had just taken over the seminaries. The church was in a horrible state. And B.B. Machen says to B.B. Warfield, we need a church split. We need to try to split off some people and say, save, you know, save something. And B.B. Warfield turned to him and said, you can't split rotten wood. <laughs> it's a great statement. And when the, what became the Orthodox Presbyterian Church left, they were first called the Presbyterian Church of America and then in America, and then they were sued and they changed their name to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I think the first, I think it was only 1,200 people out of a church with several million people. There were several million people. And out of that came 1,200 people. That is a tiny remnant. And of course, that, that giant church is not even half the size it was back then because of people, you know, if you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe in the, the gospel, if you don't believe in a literal resurrection, what's the point of having a church at all? Since at least the Civil War in the United States there has been a steady decline in the profession of Bible-believing, true Christianity in our society. Yet we must not despair or lose hope. And then second, we must focus our attention on Scripture and its glorious promises regarding Jesus Christ and his kingdom in order to strengthen our faith and hope in dark times, such as we are experiencing today, in the present, our own day. Today, you're condemned if you call a girl a girl and a boy a boy. Today you're condemned if you say that uh, men having anal sex and fisting each other is immoral. Our culture is totally degenerate and sick, perverted, satanic to the core. Yet we must have hope. Christ will win because he's already won at the cross and the empty tomb. We must believe that Christ's victory at the cross and empty tomb will prosper and flourish, even in the most unfavorable circumstances. The negative, defeatist eschatologies that dominate modern evangelicalism are not based on scripture, but recent history. World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, communism, the rise of atheism, secular humanism. I watched a thing on YouTube about the spread of atheism in Europe and Canada and Australia and all these days, even in America. People are becoming more and more atheistic all over the world in what were once Christian nations. It's scary. It's extremely upsetting. Because if people don't believe in God, the basis of ethics, the, base, the basis of Republican government will fall away. 
and will be ruled by, by people like Putin, by fascist dictators. If the Christians living in the first century who were a tiny minority in a sea of unbelief, opposition, and persecution had followed the pattern of dispensational escapist evangelicalism, it is almost certain that they would have not developed the Christendom that replaced the Roman Empire, that turned Europe from rank paganism to the Christian world and life view. So let us pray for more Simeons in the church today, more Annas in the church today. Let us trust God and believe that the true faith will live and flourish in this wicked and foolish generation. And let us support those who are planting churches that believe, that are teaching the true gospel and biblical worship. This faith and hope must rest on a thorough knowledge of Scripture. Simeon, Anna, and all those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, Luke 2.38, had solid biblical reasons for such a hope. And I'm not going to go into it, but I'm just going to mention it. The prophecies of Isaiah, for example, are filled with promises of coming comfort, peace, and joy. The Messianic salvation will bring in all these wonderful blessings, not through the sword, but through the sword of the Spirit, the word, word working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, the gospel. And you can look it up later. Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, 11, 1 to 10, 41 to 11, 49, 8 to 13, 51, 1 to 6, 12 to 16, 52, 13 to, to 13, through 55 to 13, uh, 61 to 3, all of chapter 61, 66, 13. That these blessings apply to the period before the second coming is made evident. It's proved by the fact that when you read them, people are still dying, people are still given in marriage, and people are still giving birth. So the prosperity will come. Have hope. Have hope. Christ is victorious. Let us not despair. Let us not give up. Let us not be discouraged. Let us keep marching forward, serving Christ and being obedient to him. And then, Lord willing, when we come back next week, we can look at what uh, Simeon has to say, which is just wonderful, a great prophecy, a man uh, upon whom is the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful section of Scripture, very edifying, very beneficial. We thank you that our Lord's name is Jesus. He will save us from our sins. He has saved us from our sins by his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for that precious blood, Lord. We thank you for that glorious redemption, that imputation of his perfect righteousness. We thank you that even now he's at your right hand, ruling and interceding for us, for we need it, for we are still sinners, Lord. We still fall short every day. So thank you. Forgive our sins. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Cause us to love your Son. Cause us to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.